So we're reading James chapter 5, verses 13 to 19. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you ill? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth, and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their ways will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that you would help us to understand your word, that we might have confidence in your goodness and your plan for our lives. Amen. I wonder what you made of those words. I guess for some of us, they were probably difficult to hear. They bring back to the surface issues of unanswered prayer for healing in the past, whether for self or for people we love. Perhaps also there are issues of, oh gosh, does, does this mean that it's my fault, my, my sin that means I'm, I'm sick? There's some very difficult things in these verses. And a lot is at stake, actually, for us as we look at them together. In particular, our faith and confidence in the character of God and the power of prayer. There will be enormous harm if we don't understand those things rightly. Get this wrong and we'll either feel bitterly disappointed in a God we think has failed us and not done what he's promised. Or we'll end up with such a a tiny, shriveled pocket-sized view of God and prayer that we just wonder whether there's any point in asking him for anything. But more than that, the message at the heart of this passage is less a challenge to our understanding of prayer than it is a challenge to our priorities. In particular, do I care as much for my spiritual health as my physical health? Am I more concerned for things going well for my few brief fleeting years in this world or with ensuring I do not miss out on God's eternal paradise kingdom? Do we share God's view of what matters most? That actually is going to be the biggest challenge, I think, for our hearts tonight. It certainly has been for mine as I prepared. So we're going to work through the text carefully so we, uh, we can hear what God is saying rather than what we want him to say or, or what we assume he should say. As we do so, you'll see um, we're just going to work through um, when you're sick, pray to the God who heals. That's the first thing we'll see. When you're sick, pray to the God who forgives. And then lastly, turning a sinner back from sin is the greatest thing. So when you're sick, pray to the God who heals. Verse 13. 
Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you ill? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the ill person well. The Lord will raise them up. When things are good, praise God. When things are not good, pray to God. Yeah, uh-huh. Christianity 1.1 is pretty obvious. But it does bear repeating because looking out, we are competent, well-resourced, capable you people and so we we very quickly get to seeing prayer as a chore rather than a lifeline it becomes our kind of last resort when everything else has failed rather than our first resource but saying you should pray when life is hard is like saying you should take a parachute when you jump out of a plane (laughs) it's of the same order Prayer is the lifeline that connects us to to God's resources and God's rescue. So when you're in trouble, pray. And verse 14, if someone is sick, let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. Now that is not some super spiritual alternative to going to the doctor or taking medicine. You see in 1 Timothy 5.23, Paul recommends, Timothy, you've got a bad stomach, take some medicine. Uh, doctors, nurses, medication, they are every bit as much a blessing of God as some miraculous healing. I remember uh, years and years ago, Dad telling me that uh, a missionary had, um, had come back to the church, who'd been out in the developing world for a number of years, and, uh, and Dad had been asking him about stuff. And this guy was a very sober, um, sensible person, not prone to exaggeration or making stuff up, but he just had lots and lots of accounts of miraculous healings. And Dad, Dad said to him, why, why do you think God gives you all these healings when he doesn't give them to us when we pray? The missionary sort of looked at him and said, because God gave you the NHS? <laughs> Don't you realise that's a gift from God, every bit as much as a miraculous healing? I mean, I hope you thank medics for their service, especially at the moment with everything that's going on. But I hope you also thank God for medics. They're a gift from God to us. They are how God heals us most of the time. But if someone is so sick that they're laid up in bed, I think the equivalent of what's going on here is probably they're in hospital. They they cannot get to church. This isn't man flu. This is serious. And James says, look, if if they're in that kind of serious state, so this is hospital serious, then, well, they might want to call the elders to come and pray for them. And the prayer offered in faith will make the ill person well. Okay, three questions. Why the elders? Why the oil? And what is prayer offered in faith? It makes sick people well. I want to know what it is, don't you? Okay, why the elders? Is it that the elders are more powerful? The elders are, they are, you know, spiritually supercharged and therefore their prayers, they kind of have more power. No, can't be that because of verse 17. He, as he continues the passage, he then illustrates his point by saying, Elijah was a great prophet of God. No, Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly, it would not rain, it didn't rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed and the heavens gave rain and the earth produced the crops. James uses the example of Elijah to say, look, extraordinary stuff happens when 
ordinary people pray to the extraordinary God. That's how it works. So why the elders? Two reasons, I think. First, because they're the leadership, and so in a sense, they represent the church. I mean, you can't have, logistically, the entire church gather round to pray for you. Even the most generous private room on a hospital ward in London is not going to have that much room. And it would be, I mean, it might just about tip you over the edge, the sight of 200 people crowding over your bed when you're, you know, very, very sick. And so the elders go as the church. They represent the church. Secondly, you want the elders involved because, as we'll see, the issues are complex. And although the elders don't have super spiritual power, they do have biblical wisdom and spiritual maturity. It's what the elders do have, biblical wisdom and spiritual maturity to help you think these things through. So I don't think it means uh, you necessarily have to have all the elders come. I think it needs to feel like the group represents the church. It needs to be people you're comfortable standing over you when you're grotty and laid up sick in bed. Um, So perhaps a couple of elders and a couple of people from the small group is the kind of thing. Why the elders? Why the oil? Not explained, but... I think it must be symbolic. Throughout the Old Testament, when people were appointed prophets or priests or kings, they were anointed with oil. When they were appointed to a ministry of being a prophet, a priest or a king, they were anointed with oil. And the oil was a symbol of the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. You see that most clearly with David in 1 Samuel 16, 13. Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. So the the anointing with oil symbolizes the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. So in James 5, it's not uh, anointing with oil uh, to empower for ministry. It's, It's anointing as a symbol of trusting the power of the Holy Spirit to heal the person. It's just a symbol of trusting the Holy Spirit's power. So there's nothing magic in the oil. So it doesn't matter whether you use Waitrose, Dutchy Selection, Extra Virgin Olive Oil, or just, you know, engine oil, frankly. Although that would be pretty grotty. The, the oil is just symbolic. It's the Holy Spirit that you need, not the oil. And then what is this prayer offered in faith that seems to work? Well, it may just be a way of saying, don't bother praying if you don't believe God can heal. Just don't bother. Which picks up on what James first said in chapter 1, verses 4 to 6. But I think it is probably a bit more than that. So as I prepared, I read numerous accounts, uh, like the one in uh, Dan Doriani's commentary. Now, Doriani is a, a theologically very conservative Presbyterian New Testament professor at a theological college. And he writes that over the years, he has been involved in praying for all sorts of people and not had the prayers answered in the way that they wanted. But once or twice, once or twice, he and the other elders who were gathered to pray just had this burning conviction God was going to do it. And the person was healed. And so what he says is, I I think it's what's going on here. It's not that there is this technique of prayer that if you learn it, God will answer everything you do. So just learn these words, this technique. No, it's not like that. It's 
sometimes in God's kindness, he gives us the faith to pray for particular things and see an answer to that prayer. But it's in God's hands, not in our hands, as to whether he'll do that. So where do we land? If you're hospitalised with serious illness, by all means, call the church elders to come and pray for you. And you may be healed. Simple. But that's not where the passage ends. And we'll get in a real mess if we don't see how James carries on. When you're sick, pray to the God who forgives. Come back to the beginning of verse 15. And the prayer offered in faith will make the ill person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they've sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Now, that is odd. Why does he suddenly go to speaking about sin and forgiveness and confession? Now, actually, it starts before there. The, the word for make well that appears at the beginning of verse 15 is a word that usually in the Bible means save eternally. So James himself uses it four other times. If you want to look it up, 121, 214, 412, and 520. And in each of those occasions, it clearly means be saved from your sins forever. So is James saying, if you are sick, it is because you've sinned? No. We've got to be very, very careful here. There is a relationship between sickness and sin in the Bible. But we will cause absolute carnage if we don't understand that relationship rightly. Three truths for you. <coughs> They're on the screen. All sickness is the result of sin, truth one. Truth two, my sickness is probably not the result of my sin. And truth three, sickness often increases my awareness of sin. Truth one, there would be no sickness and no disease without sin. God made this world perfect, sinless. Sin, disease, corruption came into the world because we turned our backs on God and sinned, rejected him. Cancer and COVID are not God's fault, they're ours. Truth two, my sickness is probably not the result of my sin. If I run a red light on my bicycle and I get hit by a car and break a couple of ribs, my broken ribs are caused by my sin. If I have an affair and catch a sexually transmitted illness, that illness is caused by my sin. But most of the time, it does not work like that. The Bible teaches again and again that good godly people get sick and suffer. The whole 42 chapters of Job is an exploration of that. Jesus in, in John 9, 1 to 3 and, and Luke 13, 1 to 5 teaches explicitly, you cannot assume that because someone is sick, they've sinned or that the, the people who suffer most in this life must be the people who are the most sinful. That is wrong, Jesus says emphatically. The Hindu idea of karma is not a biblical idea, and it's not true. So, let me say it very clearly to you. 
if you're sick, don't assume it's because you're sinful. The Bible doesn't say that. It's entirely wrong to assume that if I'm sick, there must be sin in my life. Equally, of course, do not assume that if everything's going really well in my life, God must approve of the way I'm living. All sickness is the result of sin. My sickness is probably not the result of my sin. Truth three, sickness often increases my awareness of sin. As C.S. Lewis put it so famously, God whispers in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pain. Suffering is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And that seems to be what's happening in James 5. I mean, who here honestly thinks when life is going great, gosh, I wonder, is everything right between me and God? We just, we assume if I'm hashtag blessed, then everything must be fine between me and God. Or, or rather, we, we just ignore God because we're so busy enjoying how life's going that we feel no great need for him and, and we fail to think of him very much. But then I get struck down with whatever it is, COVID or, or, or long-term exhaustion or, or some other suffering. And that sense of physical ill health, it humbles me. And so often it's when I'm brought low with illness or, or suffering that I start to think and examine myself a bit more. Whether it's sickness, financial calamity, relationship breakdown, that suffering so often as I look back at my life is it cause a spiritual awakening and help me see sins that I had just ignored, blinded myself to, buried deeply. And suddenly the physical weakness led to an awareness of my spiritual weakness and need for God. It's not always the case. Sometimes there are no particular sins when, and suffering comes, but still we, we often think that there must be. Uh, the Westminster Confession says in times of suffering, we're prone to fear, accuse and feel abandoned by God. You know that, when things go badly, we, we assume there must be a problem and that's where you call the elders. People with biblical wisdom and spiritual maturity to help you work through to help you understand whether what you need to do is confess sin or what you need to do is be reassured that the fact that you're suffering doesn't mean God doesn't love you. I was listening uh, to a, an interview a couple of weeks ago with the, the preacher and author Tim Keller. And he was saying that uh, a little while previously, he'd, uh, he'd got to the age where you're in and out of doctors and uh, he'd been in with a, a stomach complaint. And while they were doing the tests, they found out that he had pancreatic cancer. Totally unrelated, this sort of minor inconvenience of a stomach problem had nothing to do with this ultra-lethal cancer. But that illness, the stomach thing, led to some examination at hospital which led to the discovery of a cancer that would have killed him very, very quickly. And thankfully, having discovered it, he's now getting treatment uh, and may survive a little while longer. And James's point is something similar. How wonderful when, when sickness leads us to, uh, not to a physical hospital, but to a, the spiritual hospital where we examine ourselves 
and deadly sin is revealed that's rotting our souls and leading us to eternal death. That's why James moves from sickness and healing to sin and confession. Verse 16, therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Don't let sins fester in relationships in church. That's been a big issue in James. He says, don't let them fester. Be quick to confess so that your prayers aren't, aren't hindered by your sin. It reminds us too, actually, this verse, that spiritual health is corporate, not just individual. I stand as an individual before God, but I'm part of a people. And our sins affect one another. Now that word for, for healed again at the, um, at the end of verse 16 is ambiguous. It can mean physical or spiritual healing. It's used in different ways in the New Testament. But here it would seem that forgiveness, spiritual healing, spiritual restoration makes more sense so that you may be restored rather than healed perhaps. And so when you come to verses 17 to 18 about Elijah, they do fit with this. Uh, Verse 17, Elijah was a human being even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed and the heavens gave rain and the earth produced its crops. Now, in one sense, that's a simple account that tells a simple truth. The power of prayer is not in, in the mouth of the one praying, it's in the one hearing the prayer, Almighty God. But here's the thing, if you know anything about Elijah's life from 1 Kings in the Old Testament, it's a pretty odd account for him to pick because there are other things he could have gone for. There are more dramatic incidents like when Elijah prays to God and calls down fire from heaven in front of the whole nation. Or there's even an instance where Elijah prays over a sick person a child who's actually just died, and they are raised up to life. Think, why not go for that instance if you're illustrating the power of prayer to heal? Well, because the praying for a drought is not just a random thing. Back in Leviticus 26.19, God warned his people, if you turn against me, there will be physical consequences. Things will start going badly so that you're woken up and you come back to me. And one of the things that he he mentions in Leviticus 26, 19 is that the sky will become as bronze. There will be hard and no rain. But if you turn back to me, then the rains will come and you'll be restored. Sickness leading to confession of sin and restoration is being illustrated here. And so we should have the same confidence that Elijah did that God will restore those who who realise that they have turned from him and are in trouble. And then the last verses tell us, turning a sinner back from sin is the greatest thing. This climax of the whole book confirms our understanding of a section where the focus has moved to spiritual health. Verse 19, my brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner back from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. 
James's final words to these worldly churches, where there are many who claim to follow Jesus with their lips, but who in their lives follow the ways of the world. Many who are physically gathered on a Sunday, but spiritually are wandering a long way away from Jesus. And so James ends with hope and encouragement. The hope is that there is restoration possible for those who've wandered. They can be brought back, verse 19. The encouragement to the rest of us is press on with the difficult, sometimes thankless work of going after those who are wandering, gently, lovingly challenging them, prayerfully calling them to come back to Jesus. In other words, doing for one another individually what James has been doing corporately by sending the church this letter. Now, maybe if we're honest, one or two of us might feel mildly disappointed that I was hoping this passage would tell me how to find physical healing, which I long for. But it actually makes sense that James' focus moves quickly onto and lands on spiritual health. You see, even those physically healed in the most dramatic ways, and it does happen, like, I mean, think of Lazarus in John 11. He's been dead three days. Jesus speaks and he shuffles out of the tomb and has to be cut out of his grave clothes. Lazarus is dead today. Few short years later, they buried him again for good. A miraculous, wonderful physical healing from God would be a glorious thing. And it would bring great joy to your life on earth. But then you will die. But those who've wandered from God in sin and are brought back are restored to a salvation which will last forever and ever and ever. They will be uh, brought back to... uh, away from death, saved from death, verse 20, and their sins covered over. And they'll be brought to a delight that nothing on earth can match. So pray to the God who promises what? To heal you, forgive you. Both physical healing and forgiveness come from God and are obtained by prayer. That's what we read here. And James 5 encourages us, if you're sick, pray to God for healing. Do it. And if you're burdened by sin, pray to God for forgiveness. Do it. But there is a difference of expectation when you read the whole Bible. We pray for healing from sickness, knowing God can do it. But remembering he won't always do it in this age. I mean, you see that most clearly, perhaps, with the Apostle Paul, who had the power to heal all sorts of people as God's apostle. But then 2 Timothy 4.20 tells us he had to leave Trophimus at Miletus because he was sick. Why didn't you just heal him? Apparently he couldn't. Philippians 2 says that Paul sends Epaphroditus back to Philippi because he found it so burdening, the anxiety of Epaphroditus' illness, that he had to send him back. Not even the great apostle Paul could guarantee physical healing. We pray differently, though, for forgiveness, because that's not something God can do. It's God something God always promises. The promises of forgiveness 
are immediate, free and full for those who turn back to God. 1 John 1, 9, if, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And you never find a caveat or a condition or a context that limits the offer of forgiveness in the Bible. Ultimately, though, the, the Bible is about God. And every passage ultimately is teaching us about the character of God. And what we learn here and in the rest of the Bible is that God is so committed to your physical health to you being free of sickness. God is so committed that he sent his son to die on a cross and rise to new life so that you could be with him forever and live forever and never get sick again. But here's the thing. Your sicknesses on earth cannot stop you getting into his eternal paradise but your sin can sickness can't keep you out of paradise sin can and so because God loves you he prioritizes rooting out our sin rather than giving us the comfort and the ease and the health that if we're honest we long for most of the time and if we are wise much as we rightfully long for physical health We'll long for spiritual health even more. Let's pray. Our Father God, we uh, pray that you would indeed um, grant healing to those here who are sick. And Father, we pray that you would grant forgiveness to those who are burdened by sin. And our Father, we pray that you would help us to, to trust you and to love one another. And our Father, we pray that our great longing would be you would do whatever it takes. Bring us through whatever experiences are necessary that we might make it safely to heaven. Amen.